You are listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I am your host, Peter Horgan. On this podcast, I will be chatting with folks who care deeply about the climbing environment to discuss the advocacy work that's happening beyond the crag. My aim is to connect more climbers to the important work that these advocates are doing day in and day out. From the small local crags, to the nation's iconic landscapes, and to the offices of our nation's capital, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. Since 1991, Access Fund has been keeping the crags, boulders, and alpine environments around the country conserved and cared for. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 18. My guest for today's episode is Karima Batts. Karima is an adaptive climber, born, raised, and still living in New York City, who has one just incredible and powerful story. She is a survivor of a rare form of cancer and who was forced to have an amputation on one of her legs to save her life and avoid any further complications with her recovery further down the road. And after a transformational climbing trip to Colorado some years back, it was love at first sight. Climbing is now a major part of her identity, and she has made it her mission to provide these same kind of opportunities for other adaptive climbers through her work as founder of the Adaptive Climbing Group. She, she's just a ray of positivity, and her soft-spoken delivery of her story, you, you just can't help but be drawn into it. The term adaptive is a term that we use a lot in the conversation, and it's a term that's used to describe someone who has to participate in sports and just every other every other everyday activities in a different manner than you or I might have to. But after this conversation, I got to thinking some more about the root word in there, the word just adapt. We all adapt to changing circumstances in life all the time, and we're literally doing that right now, today, this year. So that's what these climbers do. They adapt, and they just keep climbing. We end the conversation talking about how climbers can be more welcoming or inclusive to adaptive climbers and other athletes, and Karima pretty much leaves us with something to chew on or something to think about, about how we can highlight not what's different between us, but what's more of the same. Focus on what's the same and what's the thing that brings us all together here. This was a pretty powerful conversation, so to avoid getting too philosophical here, I'll let Karima do the talking. Enjoy. All right, Karima, yeah, how's how's your morning going? How is, uh, you know, you're kind of in the epicenter of everything that's going on right now being in New York. Uh, how's everything going in your world? Uh, I was born and raised in New York my entire life, and um, I've always been proud of my city, and I still am. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, the beginning of everything happening, I was uh, in the DAX uh, at ice climbing trip with um, – some adaptive climbers um, that weekend that the president made the announcement for there to be a 15 day um, uh, situation, you know, f- asking people to social distance and what that meant. And um, I got a call that night when everything was happening. Cause I didn't realize what was going on. You know, we had, we heard a little bit of NPR and then we were on the trails and uh my friends told my friends and family wanted me to leave New York immediately because they had some friends in the government that said they were going to shut things down. And I'm a a woman with a disability, but I'm also with a woman with a disability who lives alone, you know. Um, and they were afraid if anything or I was to fall ill, there'd be nobody around, you know. Um, and that's that's a big deal, and I totally get that. Um, right. So I literally within 24 hours jumped into a car and uh came down to north carolina you know where my mother and other people were born and i've been in north carolina for a month and then recently just last week i went back to new york for the first time Um, i didn't know what to expect you know because you see a lot of media and news stories and you know, they have a way of using very catchy verbs with certain tones that make you feel dread all the time, right? right and right. you go back there, not only did so many of my friends, both my climbing community and my and my immediate neighbors miss me, um, everybody was very respectful. 
They were very um, adherent to what was going on. Um, everybody was wearing face masks, practicing social distancing, um, and very helpful and and uh, very thankful for each other, even with the mm -hmm. distance between us. You know, right? right. Um, even with a face mask, you could tell someone was smiling at you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> That's um, awesome. And as as scared as I was to make the long drive back. Uh, for other reasons, gas stations, and I had all the Lysol wipes, and I have gloves, I have hand sanitizer, face mask. I was very, very careful, um, and mm -hmm. I brought my own food in a cooler with me, so I didn't stop anywhere for food. <laughs> um, and uh, I was just like, "Wow, I could, I could actually stay here in the city. I, it's not as horrible as I thought it was." Um, a bunch of my neighbors created a, a WhatsApp network. Um, and we would check on each other constantly. People were leaving mm -hmm. things at people's doorsteps and then sending them a message like, hey, I heard you needed sugar. I stood on the long line at the supermarket and put, picked up sugar so you didn't have to stand on the long line at the supermarket because only a certain amount of people are allowed to get in. So it's it's been very actually considering how far apart we are from each other or how far we need to be, everyone has found a way to still kind of keep that sense of community and help each other. Right. Yeah. The camaraderie is still there. That's, that's important in a time like this. And I wanted to yeah circle back on that a little bit here later on the conversation, but uh, yeah, like you said, you're born and bred New Yorker and you do reside that like downtown in the city. I live in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which is right on the East river, like literally on the East river, about walking right distance from, uh, GP81 bouldering gym and uh, a, about 20 minute walk from the BKBX gym that's opening. So <laughs> if you know you're a climber from New York City, if you if you like claim specific climbing gyms. <laughs> like, were you yeah, near? Oh, I'm near the, the, the Queens facility and the <laughs> right. I went to so I went to the Access Funds annual summit in twenty was that twenty eighteen when it was in yes. New York, and I went to one of the gyms and it's the name's escaping me, but there's a really really good barbecue joint like right next door. Does that ring okay. a bell? I think that might be the Cliffs. It's like Cliffs, right across the street, and it has like a backyard barbecue. It, it has a little bit so. of a yard in the back. Sometimes they play live so. music there. Oh, that's the best. Probably. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely but, uh, the best barbecue I've had in New York City. So I, I'm pretty wow, sure that's right. it. It's the only other climbing gym next to a barbecue place, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's very conveniently located. <laughs> yeah. Well, be, yeah, being a born and bred New Yorker, uh, what was like life like in the outdoors for you prior to, because you haven't always been a climber, but prior to discovering climbing, what was the uh, outdoor life for you being a city girl? Well, for me, um, I had outdoor life. Uh, like I said, my family's from the South. My pops who mm -hmm. raised me was from South Carolina and his wife was from North Carolina. They moved to New York in the 60s. They bought a house in Flappish, Brooklyn in, uh, by 1970 and married. And, um, and so we had a front yard and we had a backyard. Um, I hated when he made me pull weeds and grow things and grow a vegetable <laughs> garden, but I was into it. Yeah, um, yeah, I yeah. always loved being outside, whether it was riding my bike or the concrete or attempting to build my own tree swing and failing horribly. Um, I was always outside. And then in addition to that, um, I grew up uh, Seventh-day Adventist, which is a Sabbath-keeping, Christian-based uh, you know, uh, religion, for those who don't know about it. Um, mm -hmm. And we have something called Pathfinders, right? Which is like a Christian version of the Boys and Girl Scouts, like their version of Boys and Girl Scouts. And we have the same thing, the badges and the and the uniforms and everything. And I was in it uh, up until I was 16. And part of, a lot of it was not tying, fire building, camping, um, you know, knowing trails, even knowing how to make a tourniquet. These are all things I knew by the time I was 13. Awesome. So um, I had my outdoor experiences, whether they were in uh, Prospect Park, in Central Park. You know, I think that when people think of New York, they don't think about green space. 
but mm-hmm. we are literally like a group of islands and peninsulas surrounded by water and green space and marshes and swamp in the city. All of that wow. exists, yeah. you know, uh-huh. um, acres of it. <laughs> so people go fishing. I went fishing with my pops when I was four in Brighton Beach in Brooklyn, you know, and you get on the boat and on the river and you go fishing. You know, I, I was a, a junior New York City park ranger in my senior year of high school. Um, and I spent all summer um, doing water testing and cleaning Jamaica beaches um, with environmental group and uh, clearing brush so we wouldn't have uh, fires, um, mm-hmm. dry brush um, off of uh, Garrison's Beach, which has an environmental center there too as well. Um, I've cleaned up Prospect Park Lake <laughs> as part of my community day. So it's like when you think about it, you're saying, oh, a city full of eight and a half million people. You know, you you look at a lot of TV shows and movies and people just think that's that's all that we have. And it's so much more than that. If anybody right, would dedicate right. a show to being a New York City park ranger, I think it would be so cool. I think it'd be better than Parks and Rec, actually. <laughs> oh, now that's a bold <laughs> statement right there. That's my favorite show of all time. <laughs> well, because New York City park rangers are such a mix. I mean, we're talking like the hoodish chicks from Canarsie mixed with the most Italian chicks from Bensonhurst and then some guy who moved from Colorado that wanted to move to the city, but loved the outdoors. It'll be all those people are New York city park rangers. I think it'd be a great show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Well, that's, that's really, that's really, really cool that you had this experience being, uh, yeah, within the city limits of a, like, yeah, our nation's largest city. Um, and I think that's green space is so important in a, in a city space. I'm from the Chicago area and there's a lot of parks, lots of green space in Chicago. I'm pretty sure Boston's up there on the list too, for having a lot of green space. Yeah. Boston's it's really heavy with uncommon. it. Yeah, yeah. It's not a very uncommon thing, surprisingly. I think for it's everyone awesome. who is not from a major city, it's a hard thing for people to picture and imagine in their mind. Sure. Right. To, that we get outside, that we go canoeing and rowing in a city. And I'm like, mm-hmm. dude, all the time. Yeah, (laughs) it's free actually for us you guys have to pay guides like our city actually provides it's part of our parks department they have all of these free programs for you to try rowing for you to try kayaking down down Mm -hmm. the hudson river they have actual free days to do that that's amazing yeah isn't it cool so even the the most you know person with who's an immigrant who is, uh, you know, working class or on food stamps can have outdoor experiences in New York City. I think that is the biggest blessing I have growing up. And our family went through changes. We were on food stamps at some point, you know, we all, we did have some struggles, but I never missed anything that a lot of my um, adult colleagues in the outdoor industry experienced, you know? I maybe didn't go ice climbing, but none of my family wants to go climbing. I'm the only one. Yeah, me and my godson. <laughs> uh, that's all right. Well, yeah, having that again, having that green space in a city limit just does leaps and bounds for people's mental and physical health. Uh, I've read all kinds of studies and papers on that kind of thing, and it's it's huge, very, it's very important. So huge. Uh, yeah, we mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that you have a disability. I don't want to use like any incorrect terminology or anything, but you're an adaptive athlete, and yet you, you really have an amazing story. Uh, dating back, you know, a number of years. Um, would you be willing to take us from the top there and how you got to where you are now with this adaptive climbing group that you've created and where it all kind of, not just where the climbing group began, but where your story began with uh, being diagnosed with cancer, then your amp- amputation? I was uh, diagnosed with cancer in uh, 2009. Mm-hmm. And um, I spent a year or so between a year or two, two years between having amputation and also going through chemotherapy. And then, um, I was, I was diagnosed as stage four and I wasn't given like, uh, (laughs) the chances weren't for me (laughs) for a number of reasons. Um, and it was a very rare form of cancer. Um, I've Mm -hmm. literally met out of hundreds of cancer patients I've met in my advocacy over a decade I've met four. Wow. And th- uh, no, five. And three of them are still alive. Sorry. Mm-hmm. 
because there's a high chance of relapse between the, in the first three to three to five years. Sure. Um, and the survivors are mostly male and the people who have the kids are mostly male. So I'm already an oddity as it is too. Um, wow. So uh, that was one of them. And um, I was, you know, of course, living in the city and, you know, in my twenties and, you know, living the life, hitting the New York City club scene, working in publishing and office and thinking I'm like, woo me, New York City girl living the dream. And then, you know, just an explosion of that. Um, but in that, I there was definitely a level of depression that comes with it. It's actually similar to, similar to what people are feeling now, to be honest with you. In this mm-hmm. situation... It's so funny. I, I saw a meme posted by a cancer survivor, so I reposted it. And in the in the meme, there were two photos side by side, right? One photo was showing a group of people very scared. And they said, this is the group of people who just found out they have to isolate and might randomly die unexpectedly. And then underneath was a picture of like James Franco with a noose on his neck about to walk to the guillotine. And it says cancer patients saying first time, huh? (laughs) So um, people don't understand it. Like if you're a cancer patient, one, you do wear a face mask to protect yourself from other people because your immune system is compromised, right? So even if someone has a cold, it could kill you, right? Yep. Second, you do have to isolate yourself because it is unsafe to really go out. Um, And you're very dependent on other people bringing and delivering you things, especially if you're a new amputee like I was. Um, Mm -hmm. and thirdly, you're used to preparation. I mean, our whole lives as, as especially certain physical disabilities where in which, you know, balance or carrying something, or if you're a wheelchair user, we have to, I've noticed when I became an amputee, I had to time everything down, you know, I'd say, okay, I got to catch this bus. I know Google maps is a 10 minute walk, but a Karima walk is probably about 15 to 16 minutes, you know, (laughs) and then you're just like, if I miss this bus, (laughs) like, you know what are my alternatives, you know? So you're used to financially and just physically planning, or let's say you're a wheelchair user who has an aid and you're like, okay, when my aid comes, I have to have them do X, Y, and Z because I won't see her again for another week. Right. Right. So we're so used to kind of either this sort of self-isolation or, or societal isolation being incredibly careful with fragile life expectancy. Right from other people being um, being able to, to cause harm to us, that this mm-hmm. was not even like, the isolation part doesn't get me at all. I'm not bored. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I hear people like, I don't know, I'm bored and all. I miss, you know, brunch. And I'm like, I'll make my own brunch. <laughs> yeah, like, come on. <laughs> um, I mean, like, think about the people who are people with disabilities who are isolated. They can't have AIDS over, right? What is the danger of that aid actually bringing COVID-19 to them and being Mm -hmm. of a high-risk state? Because I'm considered high-risk. My stage four cancer treatment damaged my lungs and my breath capacity because I had Mm -hmm. multiple pulmonary embolisms during treatment. Wow. So I will seem out of breath. I'm not tired, but you'll I'll like breathe really heavy, you know, when I'm walking mm-hmm. and stuff. So because yeah. my lung capacity is not the same. Um, and so when you think of that or people who are asthmatic and stuff like that and that require physical assistance from someone, what are they doing in this situation? You know, if they're independent mm-hmm. like I was or or even if they do have family and friends, but they don't live in their house. So you can't say, well, are you going to live with me now? Or there's a lot of that. That's a really big issue right now. Um, yeah, of course. It's just not elderly nursing homes, but even 19 year old and and children with disabilities that are at risk currently. Um, right. Yeah. I think, it, yeah, it's hard to be able to relate to and understand because it's, it's just not in your life or you're not dealing with it, but it, it certainly is happening. And I think that needs to be maybe highlighted some more. So hopefully we can do that a little more today. <clears throat> so the, the amputation that you had to have, was that like your, was that your only option 
that you had to take care of this? Yes and no. So the thing about the rare form of cancer is, at least maybe during my time, maybe they have a lot more knowledge about it now um, because there's more patience. Um, mm-hmm. But they really had it at that time. And this is like uh, mid 2000, like 2010. There really hadn't been a lot of study done. I, I remember they asked me if they can have my tumor to study because people were starting to study this type of young adult cancer because it is a young adult cancer, by the way. So the okay. the statistics are marginally three to one males under the age of 30 is usually when it manifests. So wow. yeah, so it's literally a young adult cancer. <laughs> Yeah, I know, course. right? Can you believe it? Not not an adolescent cancer like osteosarcoma, uh, which does usually require amputation, but it's actually a young adult cancer. That means these are people over the age of fifteen that will get this, um, but younger than forty, you know, or younger than thirty-five. Um, Crazy, m- like millennial Gen Z cancer or something. I don't know, but um, <laughs> uh, I think. I forgot the question now. <laughs> I the question. Uh, yeah, no, no worries. I was just wondering because I've heard other stories of like, hey, you have this option. You can keep your leg. Oh, no. There was arm. no option to actually. I mean, the options when you're stage four, right? Mm-hmm. The, it's think of, it, think of it like mold on a bread. Your cancer is mold on a bread, right? Mm-hmm. You sure. could cut the mold off the bread or cut off the cheese, right? But there's mm-hmm. a chance that mold's still there if you cut off what you visibly can see or try to cut real close to it, just so you can yep. save as much cheese as possible or as much bread yeah. as possible. Because you're like, mm-hmm. man, this raisin bread was so good. Maybe if I just <laughs> cut this little piece of mold, it'll be okay, right? Right, right. So in this sense, that's what it was like. They said, well, we could do like like multiple surgeries and try to save as much as possible. Or you can make a clean getaway. Yeah. So the and... thing is, when you have a, such an aggressive and rare form of cancer, that's a tumor that grows really fast like that, you don't want to be like cutting it really close because you miss a little bit. It still spreads out and still, you know, cultivates. Um then you're going to be upset about that because <laughs> you'll still be right, fighting it. Right. Or not only that, it's also quality of life. If I went ahead and got the amputation, I'd get up and walk faster. If I go through surgeries, I could be in surgeries for like two or three years. Sure. And sure. the difficulty in that is, is that one, what am I still going through chemotherapy? So then if I, mm-hmm. let's say I get the tumor out and I, then I go through radiation the chemotherapy, then have to wait for my body to heal, and then go back to reconstructive surgery. Oh, boy. It's... That also messes up my recovery process. So when will I exercise? When will I, you know, will I atrophy waiting for that process? Right. And then end up getting an amputation anyway, which I have seen that happen, where which uh, it was, I think she was like maybe 17 or 16, so she was younger, so the parents made the decision. Right. And they had all these reconstructive surgeries, you know? And then when she, she, uh, hung out with a bunch of us amputees and then, uh, when she turned 19, she told them she was tired of wearing this brace and she's been in yeah. surgeries for like two or three years. She's like, can we just have the amputation? You know, the parents didn't, oh, you lose your leg, you know, cause people have this sort of negative connotation of, of oh, amputation right. losing a leg that somehow sure. your quality of life is less that it's better to hang on to a, a limb that isn't working right. <laughs> than to right. cut it That's off. not true right <laughs> it's not true just because it looks like you have two feet it's and the person's functionally miserable and the doctor says here is your other and here's your other option and you know since then what did she do she got the amputation. She's ran marathons. She's played ice hockey. She went to medical school. She had a better quality of life. She wasn't miserable. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying this is everybody's story, but I think one of my biggest issues is that 
unfortunately for hundreds of years, someone sees you as an incomplete human, whether you are congenital mm -hmm. with your disability um, or it's through trauma, you know, a terrible accident or a disease. They're like, well, this disease or this traumatic accident, accident or this, this car accident destroyed this person. Mm -hmm. You know, a person is more than the sum of its parts. Right, right. Well, the, the way you speak about adaptive climbing and people with uh, adaptive needs uh, is, is really important to keep highlighting. I mean, your whole mentality or ethos is to not focus on what you don't have, but rather what you do have and taking those existing abilities and providing a vehicle to enable them. And for you, it's climbing. And so moving along in your story, after this traumatic experience you had, you were able to I read and, and listened to another podcast you were on, but you came out west to Colorado and got into rock climbing because you weren't really, really that exposed to the sport prior to this whole experience. Is that correct? No, not at all. Like absolutely never had the experience. I mean, I scrambled up a boulder in Central Park. <laughs> I didn't know that people actually, that was like a sport. <laughs> you know, you just crawl all over stuff. Yeah, totally. I was like, oh, wait, they actually climb here. I've been crawling all this thing. Right, right. <laughs> <This whole time. laughs> um, but yeah, I just, um, I had no experience or expectation of it. And um, I think that's what made me do it. You know, um, I was going through depression and I was even, let's just put it this way. Brunch was every day for me at some point yeah. in my recovery process. Uh -huh. I was definitely going through it, as they say. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. And I'm sure there's a lot of people right now who's who's made a lot of trips to the wine store since yeah. <laughs> since right. being in isolation. People are trying to find a way to kind of deal with this limited mobility that they have, this restriction. Um, mm -hmm. I'm again, I'm chilling. <laughs> I'm okay. Yeah, um, good. I think anybody with a disability, despite the fact of not having the certain kind of aids that we would normally have, mm -hmm. um, are okay. We're like, we're, we got this <laughs> in a certain kind of way. Yeah, um, of course. But I, the, the trip out West was really important to me and more emotionally and spiritually than it was physically. Physically, it was helped the emotional and spiritual part, right? I had not tried hiking yet in my prosthesis. I definitely never climbed before in my life. Um, I never been to Colorado <laughs> before that. Well, actually, no, I, I landed in Colorado once to go to Nebraska, but that's, <laughs> that's oh, as far as Colorado I've been. Um, so it was sure. all just a, a huge, massive experience for me. I will. I had friends that lived in Nebraska. I know. Why would we go to the flat place? Now I would never go to Nebraska. But um, <laughs> that was as far about Colorado as I knew. I knew that, uh, you know, a famous movie was filmed there over there <laughs> in a big giant house. Um, but otherwise than that, I had no knowledge or anything to bring to that experience. Um, and that is what, what, made it great i think taking yourself out of a a usual place and at that time home and everything involved in it friends family my experience with cancer my experience becoming a person with a disability and recovery i felt um smothered and agitated and and ill-tempered and depressed and i just nothing i could do could get me out of this funk you know mm-hmm um, and, uh, I was guided by Colorado mountain guides underneath first ascents program, mm -hmm. um, which both are still in existence. So if you go to Estes park, say hi to everybody. And, um, it was really amazing. And it wasn't because I was, it, it, there wasn't an adaptive trip. May I add, even though one of the people, one of the cancer survivors there was visually impaired, um, due to his uh, tumor being removed from his brain. But the other 11 or 12 people did not have disabilities. and But they were all cancer survivors and or fighters. Either they were kind of mid-treatment or just finishing treatment, or they were it was completely behind them. Um, 
so we were all in different stages of our lives and we all came from different places too, different states. Uh, we were different ages, right? We were like 19 and 25 and 35, you know, some mm-hmm. had actual kids, you know, but here we were in this big giant house and, and bunk beds and it was the most oneness I've ever seen in my life because we were all focused on this experience, you know, not on where we came from. Matter of fact, we didn't even use our real names and that was part of it too. We don't even know what our real names were until the end. <laughs> Interesting. So we're all given names uh, based on when we met each other and we we'd talk a little bit about ourselves and then we, then the people around us would give us a name, you know, Um, I think that was a very cool aspect of it too. It didn't work as well in adaptive climbing. I tried it in the beginning and it just, it didn't hit, but, um, the aspect of what influenced me from that experience to do what I'm doing now, besides my own personal feeling around, um, being outdoors and it's, and it's therapeutic nature, um, and climbing was the fact that there was a sense of oneness through our experiences, whether we struggled on the trail and we were helping each other, getting to a second pitch or a third pitch. We went to El Dorado Canyon. We climbed the Bastille was our, our graduation climb. And oh, awesome. no, I went from not climbing at all. And then within how about a week and a half we were out there, you know, learning how to self-belay. <laughs> learning, you know, for, we started off with like an 80 foot sort of like scrambly climb to just kind of get the aspect of moving on rock and then doing a self belay. And then each day was like, you know, a step up. Right. And then our final was, uh, I think we did only two pitches in the Bastille. We didn't do all three. We did, we did two pitches and then, um, a self belay down from there. Very cool. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, it was just, just a beautiful place. Um, I didn't have a climbing prosthesis back then, so it was super scary. Yeah, I self sure. belayed down with the green rock, and I was just slipping all over the place. <laughs> I was uh-huh. so scared. Yeah, yeah. I was freaking out. But you did it. <laughs> but yeah, but you know, like it just makes me laugh every time I think about it. You know, because um, just how, just some of the, my gear choices were so horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Like the cheapest little Target rain suit and like yeah. just, you know, wearing like golfer's gloves to protect my hands. <laughs> when you go back That's and you hard. think about things that you thought were <laughs> were going to work because you'd never been rock climbing before, it's just, it's kind of funny. <laughs> oh, for sure. I remember I walked into like an REI when I was first getting exposed to what climbing was. Uh, I walked into REI. I'm like, I don't really want climbing shoes. So like, what would be the next best thing after that? Just like, so just kind of ignorant to how it all worked. And I look back on that. I'm like, oh, that was just kind of cringeworthy. But hey. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you just, you just keep moving along and now you can laugh about it. So it's all good. Oh yeah, for sure. I had like backpacking boots. For just like a, a simple approach, like I don't know, it was really over, over, overdone in some places and underprepared in the others, you know. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So um, yeah, it was good though. It was good. For, it was good for all of us because I think also the the volunteers who were there also learned something because it wasn't I wasn't the kind of person that they ever had to work with before, you know, and and help and prepare for. So I think we both learned something during that process and it was great. Right. Um, right. And I wanted to bring that same kind of spirit of oneness of community of removing barriers, because this was a scholarship. This was a trip that was free. And financially at that time I was living with like my boyfriend in, in the projects in East New York, because, um, only his brother lived there. His parents had moved, I think, to down south or D.C. or something. And it had an elevator. And the apartment I had before was in a nice neighborhood, but it didn't have an elevator. And I had no leg. I didn't even have a prosthesis yet. Yeah. Um, and so I needed to be able to get up into my home. So I had to move out of my apartment. We moved into uh, this uh, public housing uh, place, you know. Um, 
And so, you know, that coming from that and then going out of the projects and streets of Colorado Mm -hmm. and then coming back, it was, it was definitely um, an interesting contrast, you know? Right. Right. Of course. Of course. So you took what you, you took away a lot from this experience out in Estes Park and you wanted to do some of it yourself. Like you, you organized uh, an adaptive evening uh, at Brooklyn Boulders, I believe. And is that right? And then it just really just kind of the next thing you knew, you're head of this adaptive climbing group. Well, when I came back, I also was like, I started to fall back into that depression again. Okay. You know, because once you're back into that space that you feel all of that stuff is still there. Right. Right. And so I was looking for that euphoric feeling, you know, this new, this new thing that made me feel good, which was climbing, which was that physical, physical and, and emotional experience. Mm-hmm. So I went back to the store I was working at. Uh, I went to Easter mountain sports where I, where I got my gear, which ended yep. up being my job. I ended up working there like a few months later. And, um, I was just like, where do you, can you go climbing anywhere in New York? Like is upstate somewhere? You know, like I was thinking, they were like, oh, well, you know, a bunch of us go to a climbing gym. I was like, there's a gym for climbing? You know, I didn't know any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I got my boyfriend to take me uh, to Brooklyn Boulders and I learned how to, how to belay there, you know? And then I saw the Eastern Mountain Sports sign up in the climbing gym. And I was like, oh, do they part own that? Is that why their sign is there? I didn't know about sponsors either, obviously. So then <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, you know, they climb here and we have a partnership. And, you know, their staff gets to climb here for free. And I was like, what? So then I go apply for a job at Eastern Mountain Sports. Because, <laughs> again, tons of cancer bills in my 20s, not yeah. working with a disability living in the projects of East New York, Brooklyn. And if anybody knows East New York, Brooklyn, that is a neighborhood that has not changed at all <laughs> so mm-hmm. in 40 years. Yeah. So um, I, uh, I, you know, I was like, oh, I get this part-time job. I'm, you know, I didn't, I was like, how many days a week do I have to work? Because I'm still kind of learning how to stand for long periods of time, you know, uh-huh, my first right. year of, or so of uh, having a prosthesis and mm-hmm. uh, first year. Yeah. And so immediately here I was months later, just like going climbing and cause it, it think about it. Climbing inspired me to go back to work, <laughs> you know, like to get a job yeah. so I can climb some more, like my whole aspect of working there. So I can keep feeling good, which was climbing. Climbing was making me feel good. Yeah. Um, and I wanted more of that. So that obsession took place. And um, after working at Brooklyn Boulders, uh, not working, but working at Eastern Mountain Sports for a couple of years and being a part of, started joining like the amputee community, like other people like me going to support groups and stuff like that. And and finding out all these, about all these other adaptive sports and stuff. And people were commenting on, on how well they said I walked. There were other people who had their amputation at the same time as me and was like, your balance is good. Do you get back pain? I'm like, nah, you know, um, well, who's your PT? I was like, I don't have a PT. So what are you doing? I'm like, I'm climbing. And I'm like, what? You know? (laughs) And and honestly, I would, I would, I'm not saying I'm a medical, this is just my personal experience, but I think because one, I am not a person who like says, Oh, you know what? Let's go to the gym. Let's go run a marathon. Like that has never been me. So, <laughs> um, so to find something that was physical therapy for my disability without actually having to see a physical therapist, which I hated going to physical therapy. I thought it was like kind of boring. Squeeze this ball, step sideways, pull this band. Sure. I was like, this is, ugh. but climbing, <laughs> oh, I could do that four hours a day, you know, right. and not feel like I went to PT. It was fun. And um, it definitely did things like improve my balance, make me more aware of my space, you know? Yeah. Um, the strength in my my legs and my lower back and core because uh, you're using different muscles when you um, are walking with a prosthesis. And mm-hmm. depending on the height of the amputation, people suffer from like lower back pain and stiffness and, and uh, you know, stiff thighs and thigh muscles and quads and things like that. And I felt like, the climbing definitely was part of what 
helped me never have, I never had that experience. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Cause you're working your hip flexors, you're working all those things that you need to, to walk with your prosthesis. So when, you know, my friends would ask me, you know, what do you do? Do you take any pain medication? I'm like, no, you got any back pain? I'm like, nope. <laughs> I don't know what these things you're talking about. Um, the answer. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely could say that there are a couple of climbers with disabilities. Personally, my program, we've at least been in a program for a few years that actually do use climbing as a form of physical therapy. Um, yeah. One who's been with our New York program for about four or five years, he's uh, paraplegic. He was a roofer and he fell off the roof and uh, broke his back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you're sitting for a long time, your your spine compresses, right? And compacts and causes back right. pain. And he likes to come in climbing, not just because exercise, because he's a really built dude. He looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger because he's Serbian and he's just <laughs> got like big old muscles and he's like 40 something. And yeah. he has that thick accent. So we would call him Arnold. And uh, he campuses up these five nines and five tens, and he says it makes his back feel better, you know. So that makes perfect sense. You know, sense. some people do use it as a form of, you know, emotional—not just emotional, physical, but have some physical attributes to it. Um, yeah, of course. But I, one one thing I I can say I would like to touch on that I haven't touched on other stuff is I feel that when able-bodied individuals create programming for people with disabilities. Um, I do believe that there are a lot of great intentions and there's an altruistic thought process behind it. So when they think about climbing access at climbing festivals and bringing someone into a climbing gym or teaching us how to do some hitches and basic six, six knots for climbing, you know, they might do it in a one-off experience, you know, I don't feel like, I feel like the more professional development of seeing that person as a climber, because sometimes if people don't see you doing the exact same beta, they go, is that really climbing? I had, I had a few people who wanted to sign up to be volunteers and we do disability etiquette training. Uh, I focus very heavily on a disability etiquette training because I'd like to change a lot of these thought processes. Um, And then, you know, we, bring them to the technical aspects of different ways that different disabilities categories will climb and how you can best support that. Right. So, uh, you know, sometimes depending on the type of seated climber they are, they're using a specialized, specialized harness, which is made by Misty Mountain out in North Carolina. Oh, wow. I'm here. That makes sense. Um, (laughs) And it's, it's, you know, made specifically for those with very limited mobility. And mm-hmm. they might be jugging a line or they can do like a mixed climbing, jug the line and then start using uh, some of the holds. And someone said to me, well, don't they get bored? I mean, that's not really climbing. And I go to myself, I was oh, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so when you have people who, who can't imagine being here, being where that person is and developing this experience, You're going to get a lot of comments like that. And so even though they're saying I'm coming here to volunteer because of what, where is it coming from? What are you thinking about this individual of why you're here? Do you know what I mean? Are Mm -hmm. you trying to blur the lines between ability and disability? Are you trying to create more access to the sport of climbing that you love? Or are you trying to make yourself feel better? By being a part of it. Right. And it's like you said, it's well, like they're trying to do some well-intentioned things, but it's not necessarily coming off that way. And that's where the decision-making process, when we talk about that inclusion, tends to kind of mm, not be as complete as it could be. Right. You know? That makes sense. Yeah. Totally. It's it's definitely going to be hard for me to pretend to know what it is like to be a male out of Colorado who's Caucasian. And I don't know. I think you're older than me. I'm not going to try to either. <laughs> like, why? You know, I'm not going to try to create your community for you. Do you get what I mean? Right. Yeah, so I 100%. see people trying to provide what they think people need instead of asking them what they want or what would make them feel like they are a part of something. Right. right. Giving that equity per se. Yes. 
Yes, and then actually putting it into action. So talking about, yes, putting it into action. Um, you've now created this adaptive climbing group. That's the name of your organization and has grown tremendously over the years because it started off extremely small uh, from the podcast I listened to, uh, listened to with you on before, um, you know, started off just as a one night thing it sounded like. And someone asked like, when are we doing this again? You're like, wait, yeah, maybe we should do this again. And now <laughs> it's like, a now it's a national thing. It's in multiple cities. It's, you know, it's, you're competing. You got like, competitions going like over in Europe, I believe. Like yeah. what, uh, what do you have going on with the organization right now? Well, right now in this particular process, I think, one of the aspects that has uh, made COVID-19, because I'm a silver lining kid. I'm not expecting everybody else to be, but when you've almost died a few times, you've learned to be a silver lining kid. My silver lining process with this is I've been running around the country and some parts of the world for years now. I probably spent maybe, if I'm lucky, half the month at home in New York. This slowdown of actual physical interaction of our program had us relook our administrative portion, slow down the onboarding process of program leaders, looking at new ways that we engage with our community, right? Now that we've started doing uh, live programming, we've used both Zoom and Instagram Live. And uh, one of the things we want to keep is routine. Uh, we did a survey to find out you know, what obstacles that we felt that people were going to have during this time, the financial, mental health they were worried about. And one of the ways to uh, combat anxiety around situations and traumatic situations is to have and keep a routine, right? Because your routine was disturbed. If every Tuesday you're going to be at Brooklyn Boulder's Queens Bridge climbing, we're going to make sure that every Tuesday night at the same time, you're going to be with your community, even if it's online, right? If every mm -hmm. month you had a monthly youth session at Brooklyn Boulder, Chicago with adaptive climbing group kids, the adaptive climbing group leaders are putting together Zoom sessions and creating activities. We've done um, a music session, I think it was last week, Thursday, uh, Northern New York led that one. This past Sunday, we had um, uh, Essential Knots Part 2, where they, the Massachusetts team uh, did a, a, a Instagram Live on different hitches. So when we're about to go outside and, and hit the trail, um, we'll be ready. Everybody's going to come back with new skills, you know, and, and yeah. still awesome. develop as climbers. And then mm -hmm. we're going to just have some great community stuff where we just, you know, dance to some music or, or do a trivia game. So, you know, we're, we're keeping that aspect. And I think that's something that we're going to keep um, even as we start to come together physically again, as a community, uh -huh. as climbers, I think yep. we're going to keep providing some sort of, online programming at least once a week where we do something live you know um we did virtual mm -hmm. walks because there's a lot of people with disabilities that can't actually go out and take walks you know just because they're so high risk or they need assistance right. to do it so we actually mm -hmm. started doing virtual walks on our live cool and um and even for our visually impaired describing what we're seeing and having conversations and answering questions, walking through the woods of Connecticut or the city streets of New York City. And so those virtual walks have gotten great feedback as well. And I think we'll continue to do stuff like that, virtual hikes. You know, maybe we'll, the next time we go on a trip up to the gunks, we'll, we'll do a live of the approach mm -hmm. movie. You know, I think yeah. that's something mm -hmm. that we're working on that we'll keep. Um, as far as... Uh, evolution of the program we were going to add buffalo to as a chapter program of course covid stopped that but as soon as everything gets back we'll work with central rock gym in buffalo and we'll start start that programming and um onboard leaders there um i currently serve on the diversity inclusion task force for usa climbing and um i've been on there for about six or seven months it's a, it's a two-year appointment so i'm still uh we have a meeting coming up so still working on that as well. Um, and gardening right now. <laughs> Heck yeah. yeah. Currently gardening. Um, Great. Yeah, because I can't I can't do that in my apartment as well in Brooklyn. And I'm I was again, I was never home. So all every time I had a plant, it died. So, so it's really <laughs> nice to actually see the opposite happening right now. 
sure sure awesome oh this yeah. is so fantastic yeah i love the, the your positivity and finding the silver lining in all this and taking advantage of what you what you can take care of and not just having it be a one-off thing but keeping it going once everything gets back not maybe not to normal but gets better and sticking sticking with it that's uh something to be incredibly proud of i think i so, appreciate that i know that we'll be going through yeah. this for some time and so there'll yeah, still absolutely. be other people who, even if we did open up some climbing areas, it'll be a, a sort of limited thing, you know? Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so we want to still be able to bring that to people who may not still be able to come out, you know, due to risk. And so yes. th- I think this is something we're definitely going to keep. Yeah, for awesome. sure. Love it. I love it. So it's no, it's no mystery that you work incredibly hard, that you're deeply passionate about fostering these diverse and inclusive climbing opportunities. So the Access Fund is, you know, awarding you this year with a Climbing Advocate Award for your efforts. And I think that's another thing to be incredibly proud of. (laughs) The Access Fund has partnerships with uh, local climbing organizations around the country, gyms, corporate partners, et cetera. Is there any kind of formal partnership or anything between the Adaptive Climbing Group and the Access Fund? Um. I would say it's informal. I have served on some committees that followed around uh, training for Climb the Hill for Pushing Land and Water Conservation Act bills mm-hmm. in D.C. I did that last year. Uh, well, yep. yeah, last year and I think part of this year. I don't know. The, all the days are melding into each other, by the way. I think <laughs> yep. it's 2020. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it might be it April or June yeah. or who knows what it is. It's April, June, yeah. October. That's what it is. April, June, October. Um, there you go. And I'll, I'll continue to work with Access Fund. What I'm hoping to do with Access Fund next is actually work on um, accessibility to outdoor spaces at, and or how to communicate language to accessibility at outdoor events, including stewardship and festivals that they mm-hmm. have. Um, yep. I would love to, to that would, I would like to do that with both Access Fund and American Alpine actually around, yeah. around their events, because it's, it's great to have like a, a guest like me come up or, or like uh, some of my other more well-known uh, adaptive climbing friends show a film, but to truly be inclusive and equity is meaning that when I look at your website and you're having an event, I know that I can ab- I can be able to come and I don't mm-hmm. have to ask. Right. And that's where we right. are right now with uh, access to people with disabilities and some of the outdoor access events. The climbing gyms, we got that down now. We're rocking oh, yeah. on that. Right, now right. we have to work out in our in our outdoor and wild spaces that that adaptive climbing group doesn't have to exist for me to go out rock climbing or go to a climbing festival to be a liaison. I should be able to just sign up and go. And I should sign up and do stewardship, be able to sign up and do stewardship and know what I'm able to contribute in because I also love these outdoor spaces. Sure. Sure. Have you had people reach out to you like, Hey, I need some guidance on this to be able to. I, I had a couple of LCOs, uh, for those uh-huh. who don't know, that's lawn, land cancer. Ah, can you do it for me? My, my tongue is tied. Local, local climbing organization. <laughs> local, local climbing organizations. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, I had a couple of them reach out to me in January and that's what made me actually approach, uh, your executive director about, you know, maybe putting together some training for the future, even if it doesn't happen, like, you know, obviously this year, but for at least for 2021 and, and how we do that and how we incorporate that into the existing, you know, mandates and aspects or how we would physically train anyone. Um, yeah. Very, very and cool. uh, I thought about doing that for the American Alpine Kraken Classics as well, because we did work together in one Kraken Classic and it, and it made me uh, kind of like, realize all of these other things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I think that's one of the hugest things that I would love to, to work on with access fund. Um, cool. yeah, I would love to do that. That's awesome. I mean, create some kind of like formal guide. Someone who can just like go consult online or something, or is that, is it just going to take more just like one-on-one interaction? Certain things you do have to physically teach because there's some parts of like, there's some things I can write out in language, like, you know, how to put 
how to make your website more accessible? What kind of language would you use mm -hmm. so that people with disabilities know that they are welcome in the space? Um, and, right. and how much information and what kind of information do you need to provide? You know, those yeah. are things you can do, whether it's about the campsites or, um, or even how to inform your regular attendees of your events to be more aware of space that they're using that could be meant for people who need accessibility options. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll, I definitely look forward to seeing some more of that. I think you're just, yeah, putting your best foot forward to bring up some larger, not issues, but just concerns in climbing and moving forward to get those on the forefront. I mean, they're all connected. We're all connected. Everything that yeah. we do in one space connects somewhere in the heart and in the mind. And that person will take it to the next thing. I'm going to say, oh, at this Access Fund stewardship event, there was a girl with one arm. There's a guy in a wheelchair. He was pulling the weeds out of the trail. The girl with one arm was hatcheting this branch. And you know what? I, I want to make sure that I see that everywhere I go. See, that's how it always starts. You know, it starts in that aspect, you know, of us just kind of showing up and, 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 and being the stewards that we are. I think a lot of times people with disabilities are, are seen as people that need to be helped and not people that can be helpers. And I would, right. I, I would love to change that aspect. Oh, that's, that's amazing. So it's a good segue into my final question here. But before I ask the final question, I read an interview that you did. Um, I forget the date that you did it, but I read through it. And there's a couple of quotes you said in there that really stuck out to me. And I want to read those out loud before I jump into this last question. So the first one was, people have an unrealistic view of cancer treatment and recovery. The closest people around me were sometimes the most toxic. They might say things like, come on, beat it, or you got this. And it's taxing because you have to be a stronger person for them. And then the second one was awareness and understanding is needed more than compassion. So my final question is, how can climbers be more welcoming to adaptive climbers and other athletes? Don't point out that they're different. <laughs> Pretty simple, I feel right? like I, that, no, I'm very serious. I, and sometimes we, I think as humans, we're doing it without even realizing it. Here's sure. how a conversation would go. Oh, I didn't even, maybe I wore shorts today, right? Maybe mm -hmm. I was in my tent and the whole time we hiked and wore long pants for obvious reason. But today I wore shorts to get my coffee. Oh, I didn't even know you were an amputee. I couldn't tell. You walk so well. Yeah, it's, it's well-intentioned, but it's just not, it's not the right thing to say. It doesn't even need to be pointed out. Should I be like, I didn't even know you had long hair. It looked like you shaved totally. it off. Does that sound like fun? Like, this doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good on right. this end either with my leg. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people are like, you know, if I said, oh, I didn't know that was your real hair. I thought it was fake. I mean, like a woman would be pretty pissed, would she? Oh, hell <laughs> so, yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of like, yes, we will smile and go, oh, thank you. But in our heads, we're like, oh, she was. <laughs> um, yeah. You know what? The best events that I ever had is when people totally forgot. You know, mm -hmm. you're just so you're just on the dance floor having a good time. Nobody goes, "Oh, is that? Do you want me to do something about this floor? Do you need me to go? Mm -hmm. Hey, if I need something, I'll let you know. Trust me. <laughs> I know right. how to ask questions. Right. Uh -huh. My my mouth is is a disability, but only because of its tone. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> um. I, I understand that. how to communicate. I think when you're trying to make somebody feel welcome, it's all about not respecting their differences, but not highlighting their differences because everyone wants mm -hmm. to be a part of something, you know, mm -hmm. they right. want to feel accepted and they want to be filled welcomed. Right. And they want to be yep. acknowledged for the great aspects of themselves. Right. Right. So right. I would be careful about language. Overcoming mm -hmm. is a big one. Despite okay. is another word that I hear. Despite your disability, you were still able to. That's how the conversation or the lines will read in stories that I did not write for myself. I can tell you that. I've read it a few times. There is no despite. This is the hand that I was given. The universe, God, whatever you believe in, karma, 
this is the hand I was dealt. We were all dealt with hands. Some people, you know, are prematurely balding, so they wear good looking hats. They adapt, right? That is what mm-hmm. we are. We are all human. And every day we walk out the store, every day we have to put a face mask on. We are all adapting. We are all the same. If we get yes. down to the core of our being, of our spirit and the truth of humanity and stop highlighting what we can visually see, highlighting what's different. We should be highlighting what's the same all the time. Focus on what's the same. That's the only thing that brings people together. If I highlighted on whether or not you were, you had a hedge fund or if you were on food stamps instead of whether or not you sent that V7, like which one should I be focusing on? What's the part that brings us together? It's definitely the climbing. Oh man, what a way to end it. Four words. It's definitely the climbing. Oh, that quite that put quite the punctuation on that conversation. Thank you so much, Karima, for an hour of your time and sharing your story with us. That was, that was really, really powerful and I had a really great time talking with you. If you all liked what you heard, please share it with your friends, put it up on social, share it far and wide. I think uh, everyone could stand to take an hour of their time to listen to Karima's story and how far she's come along in her journey. And um, yeah, I hope you all enjoyed that conversation. I have a couple, you know, a bunch more great conversations lined up for the coming months. So I hope you all stay tuned in. In the meantime, stay, stay safe, stay healthy out there, and I'll catch you all next time.